I think for me personally, one of the personal qualities that I've really focused on and uh, I like to live every day is grit. And actually there's a book called Grit um, that is uh, really great, which basically talks about perseverance and resilience and just just working hard, right? Because uh, it's not necessarily raw intelligence, it's not necessarily what you're born into or what your circumstances are. At the end of the day, if, if all that is baselined, everything else um, is about your perseverance, about your grit, about your work ethic. And I have uh, I learned a great work ethic from my parents who came to this country with nothing and built up a life for me and my brothers. Um, and I've really tried to uh, work as hard as I can, try to persevere, and always have always be resilient because I think that has made the difference for me personally. We built the company from the beginning not to be a remote culture. And I think companies can be remote, have a remote culture, but I think it needs to be built in from the beginning because how you operate day to day, who you hire, the types of people you hire, what profile you look like, you look at, as well as kind of how the whole company is structured really is dependent on whether you are an in-office culture or a remote culture. And I think it'd be very hard to shift. I think it's possible, but it takes a very, um, very intentional movement and a lot of effort to actually make that happen. Welcome to 14 Minutes of SaaS, the show where you can listen to the stories and opinions of founders of the world's most remarkable SaaS scale-ups. We're staying in the Web Summit in Lisbon and interviewing Mike Molinet, CEO and co-founder of Branch.io. Mike's a former volunteer firefighter a fan of building and failing fast, and now the co-founder of a hypergrowth B2B SaaS scale-up. He tells the story about how deep linking and mobile growth platform branch evolved from the pain of trying to make a consumer app successful on the App Store. Since this interview, Branch has raised another 125 million US dollars in a Series E round, giving it a total investment of 367 million dollars and a post-money valuation in the range of 1 billion to 10 billion US dollars. Mike Molinet, co-founder and COO at Branch here in the Web Summit. Delighted to have you here. Thanks for having me. We already interviewed the wonderful Mata Sagete last year, and I'm interested now to, to kind of get a feel for the company from the perspective of another founder. So tell me a bit about you, Mike, uh, right up to the time you founded, you co-founded Kindred Prince with Mata. Sure, sure, yeah. So uh, personally, I grew up in New Jersey in the United States, uh, son of Cuban immigrants who came to the United States because they wanted to create more opportunity for their kids. Um, ended up studying mechanical engineering for four years in undergrad. Uh, went to work for a large corporation for about five years where I was an engineer and did product development. Um, loved that, but also started a couple businesses on the side, some small businesses, and decided I wanted to be in tech. I wanted to be in Silicon Valley. And so I ended up going out to California, uh, did my master's at Stanford, and that is where I ended up meeting Mata, Alex, and Dimitri, my co-founders. Uh, where we ended up starting to work on uh, one project, which led a little bit later to Kindred Prince, uh, and then ultimately to Branch. And what did you learn from that penultimate project uh, with Kindred Prince that led to, <laughs> led to the wonderful thing that is Branch? Uh, we learned a lot, and we had a lot of uh, some successes, but more failures. Uh, but I think those failures were what ultimately led us to where we are today. Uh, so Kindred Prince was basically a mobile app, consumer mobile app on iOS and Android. Uh, that was a photo book making app where you could more easily make photo books 
using especially the photos that were on your phone, on your mobile device, uh, or on Facebook or Instagram, which back in 2013 wasn't really popular. So uh, we ended up uh, building that and launching it, and we found a couple of different things. Uh, I, I think the first thing was uh, we realized almost immediately that as an app, uh, entering an app store that now has five million apps across iOS and Android, and at the time had uh, over two million, it's very, very hard to succeed as a uh, new app or as a new company um, trying to compete against the big guys because the big guys had a lot of the dominance. They knew the people at Apple and Google. They could get featured in their respective stores. They could spend a lot of money on advertising. And we found that as a newcomer, it was very hard to get discovered. It was very hard to actually win or compete against those companies. Um, versus on the web, we felt that the web was a little bit more democratized. You could have really good content that would end up getting uh, indexed. And after it was indexed, would be uh, searchable or discoverable by, by end consumers, regardless of whether or not it was a big brand or a small brand. And so um, with native apps, it's not really the same. It's hard, much harder to get yourself discovered. So we ended up building a lot of organic viral sharing type features, referrals, sharing. Uh, did a lot of organic type of marketing campaigns to try to drive adoption, try to drive growth of the app. Uh, but we, we struggled. We had a really hard time. We were fortunate enough to get featured in the App Store and the Google Play Store, but that only lasts so long. And since we didn't have money for advertising, we found it was really hard to compete. Um, so that was when we started to build a lot of the things that uh, ended up being turning into what Branch helped solve for other apps today. But things like referrals, things like sharing, content sharing, um, ways to help consumers discover apps as well as for the brand to make sure that the end users get a good experience and that they can track where their users are coming from. So one of the other major issues that we had was when we were driving growth of our app, we actually didn't know what was driving the growth. We might have been doing 10 different marketing initiatives at the time, um, but there was no way to really track organic growth. It was all just ad install growth that you could track. And so we realized that between our sharing, our referrals, our blogs, our affiliates, our marketing emails, our SMSs, our pushes, all of these things were contributing in some way to the growth, but we didn't know what was working and what wasn't and what we should end up spending our time on and what we shouldn't um, because of the limitations on mobile and especially native apps. And so we ended up spending a lot of our time just building around that and trying to solve that problem for ourselves. And uh, every time we'd build something, you know, one of the operating systems would change or something else would change or a browser would change uh, and it would break what everything that we'd built or a lot of the things that we'd built. And we found that we were spending a lot of our time just doing that. And so we stepped back one day and we realized that all the effort that we were putting into Kindred was really to solve broader problems that the entire ecosystem was facing, that every app out there was facing, that any company that cared about mobile was facing. And we realized that if we could solve that, if we could solve the measurement piece, the user experience piece, the user routing piece, uh, people call that deep linking, um, we could solve something much bigger than just trying to do it for one app because all the other apps were facing the same thing. So uh, pretty much immediately after that, that's when we decided Let's start working on that. Let's give that a shot because I think that has a bigger opportunity than just our consumer-facing app. And in the last 12 months, would a lot of the progress be in that attribution and measuring area, would you say? Yeah, good question. So um, the first couple of years, we focused on uh, some basic functionality, the, the infrastructure, the underlying infrastructure to be that user routing and measurement for apps across the different platforms, across the different channels, across their different marketing initiatives. One of the pieces that came a little bit later was advertising attribution or paid attribution. Um, the technology that we had built turned out to be very effective at measuring everything, all of your attribution, especially across your organic channels, which actually tends to be more difficult. 
Um, but paid attribution had already or relative, re relatively been solved. There's a company called Tune that uh, eight, about eight years ago really started to form uh, and create that ecosystem. There's additional companies that came along. Um, and we found that uh, the products that we were building were really effective at paid attribution, really across channel and across platform as well. And so we uh, ended up getting about a year ago into the paid attribution space as well. And uh, it's challenging because it's a crowded market, but at the same time, it is uh, a great market to be in and it really provides that missing piece for that, that holistic suite of tools that, or products that we had built. Um, so we uh, ended up getting a Facebook MMP uh, partnership, which kind of accelerated that. And then uh, a few months ago, we ended up acquiring the Tune Attribution Analytics business as well. And Tune being the, the leader and really the pioneer in the attribution space, it was really just a great merger of two great teams and two great technologies. Uh, we built a lot of things that um, was a little bit newer to the tech stack and newer to the market. They had eight years of attribution experience. The team was fabulous. Uh, the tech was great. And so we were able to bridge uh, or bring two great technologies and teams together to really um, build that missing piece and really accelerate the entire industry forward, which is really good for all of our customers as well as all of our prospective customers in the future who now have this really robust and broad suite of tools that they can do, use for all things marketing and, and user experience on mobile. Fantastic. So tell me something, what are the hardest fires to put out? Uh, some of your functionality or your website going down or uh, real fires? <laughs> um, so I, I assume that you're, so you're referring to uh, me in my, earlier in my career being a volunteer firefighter while I was in college as yeah, well as, um, uh, while I was an engineer uh, at that large corporation. Yeah, so uh, for about eight years, I was a volunteer firefighter in EMT. Um, I wanted to do something for my community and I enjoyed helping people and I felt this was a good way uh, while I was in college as well as uh, post-college to help others as, as best I could, especially in the, the communities that I was living in. Um, as, as far as which is easier, uh, I'll be honest, putting out a real fire is easier um, because, well, I think for a couple reasons. One is it's a little bit more predictable, believe it or not. Uh, house fires tend to be all pretty much uh, relatively similar. Each house is a little bit different, um, but you kind of know what you're getting into. You can show up, you know what it is, and you know how to solve it. Um, and you've practiced it, you know, dozens and dozens of times. A, uh, a fire with your website <laughs> going down and customers are yelling at you, uh, not so predictable. Um, usually it is something that you don't even know what's wrong and you have to figure out what is actually wrong and then you need to figure out how to solve it. And meanwhile, you have you know, potentially hundreds or thousands of, of people in your ear saying, what's going on, what's going on? Um, so that can be especially challenging. Um, so, uh, but it can be also be, I don't wanna call it fun, but uh, a good learning experience. Um, but yeah, I would, I would, I think I'd prefer to put out real fires day to day and have a uh, website and everything yeah. else stay stable all the time. L last year I interviewed a guy called Colton Andrus, who's the founder uh, and CEO of Gremlin and they do chaos engineering or failure mm -hmm. as a service yeah. Yeah. where they go in in a very structured way into your production environment and they break stuff and, and you, you, 
you go through that kind of faster heartbeat cycle of sorting it out. And some of the problems are sorted out, I guess, for the future, but also, I guess, the processes. Do you, yeah. do you do anything like that? We do, we do. And I, I think with, you know, with our enterprise customers, a lot of them uh, have requirements that you do that. You do disaster recovery planning, you do business continuity planning, and you run, actually run tests. And it can be as simple as doing a tabletop reading, where you just say, what in the event of this happening, what do you do? Uh, or it could be actually going into your infrastructure and breaking a few things strategically. But it really, really is valuable because it makes you think about things. It's practice. Just like when, we were, when I was a firefighter, we would go through every single week we would do training. And every single week we would do uh, fake fires or real fires and we would practice and practice and practice. And then you get really good at it. And if you do that with, um, with your infrastructure, with your technology, you can get really good at it. So in the event something does happen, uh, you're prepared and you, uh, you know what to do, which is really important. Now, you live and work in Palo Alto and Redwood. And they're quite expensive places to find hmm. engineers in. There's lots of VC capital knocking around and all of that. Um, what do you think of the remote movement? Um, and do you have remote employees? I don't mean like offices in New York, but fully remote employees. And do you see that becoming a bigger part uh, of what you do as you go forward hiring? Yeah, good question. Well, I, I think there's a few different questions in there. I think first, what do I think of the remote movement? Um, I think it's great. I think it's, um, you know, technology now affords us the ability to have remote employees. And I think there's some companies that operate entirely remotely and they have lower operating costs and, you know, they're just as effective. Maybe, you know, some people might argue even more effective. Um, and I think there's a lot of value there. Uh, in terms of branch, we do have some remote employees, but very few. You know, we've got uh, some in Canada as well as a few other places, um, you know, Turkey, Russia, etc. Uh, the challenge is, I think, for um, for us is we built the company from the beginning not to be a remote culture. And I think companies can be remote, have a remote culture, but I think it needs to be built in from the beginning because how you operate day to day, who you hire, the types of people you hire, what profile you look like, you look at, as well as kind of how the whole company is structured really is dependent on whether you are an in-office culture or a remote culture. And I think it'd be very hard to shift. I think it's possible, but it takes a very, um, very intentional movement and a lot of effort to actually make that happen. And for us, we are more of an in-office culture, so it can be a little bit harder. We adapt, but uh, some companies do a very good job of doing it. If you're gonna, or if you're thinking about doing it, uh, and you're starting a company, do it from the beginning because it's very hard to switch later. Give me one personal quality that you feel helped you have this wonderful success mm. uh, in your life so far. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, besides all the things like like luck that I think go into a, a lot of success of people uh, as well as companies. I think for me personally, one of the personal qualities that I've really focused on and uh, I like to live every day is grit. And actually there's a book called Grit um, that is uh, really great, which basically talks about perseverance and resilience and just just working hard, right? Because um, at the end of the day, and they've done studies about this, uh, it's not necessarily raw intelligence, it's not necessarily what you're born into or what your circumstances are. At the end of the day, if, if all that is baselined, everything else um, is about your perseverance, about your grit, about your work ethic. And I have uh, I learned a great work ethic from my parents who came to this country with nothing and built up a life for me and my brothers. Um, and I've really tried to uh, work as hard as I can, try to persevere, and always have always be resilient because I think that has made the difference for me personally. So grit is a great recommendation for anyone thinking about yeah, becoming an I'm, entrepreneur. I'm a big fan. And is there any one other thing off the top of your head outside of grit? There's probably ten, but is there one you'd pick out? 
that you might uh, advise <laughs> if you were if you were talking to someone who was thinking of jumping away from whatever safe thing they're doing into the world yeah, of entrepreneurship? For, I mean, I've got a ton for people thinking about entrepreneurship or just getting started with entrepreneurship. Uh, I think uh, I think one of the ones that I struggled with in the beginning, but really believe in firmly now, is just do something. I think a lot of people wait for the perfect idea, for the perfect team, and it's never gonna be perfect. And honestly, the first five companies that I started failed, but the sixth branch is, is doing okay. And if I didn't start those first five, I never would have came upon branch, even with Kindred. If we hadn't started Kindred, we never would have started branch. And just go start something. Don't it, That doesn't need to be the thing. Your first idea, your first company is probably not gonna be it, but it'll help train you and help you get better so that you, you will eventually stumble upon the thing that is the thing. Mike Molinette, that was great. Thank you so much for being part of 40 Minutes of SaaS. You're welcome. Thank you. In the next episode, we stay again in Lisbon and the Web Summit, and we talk with Harry Glazer, now CMO and General Manager of SciSense, originally co-founder and ex-CEO of Periscope Data, which was acquired by SciSense. You've been listening to 14 Minutes of SaaS. Thanks to Mike Quill for his creativity and problem-solving skills and to Katsu for the music. This episode was brought to you by me, Stephen Cummins. If you enjoy the podcast, please don't forget to share it with your network, subscribe to the series, and give the show a rating. Music